Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Kadir Üstün. Uh, I'm the executive director here at SETA Washington. Uh, today, we are going to have a discussion on this new book uh, on Qatar and the Gulf crisis. This was written by Christian Coates Ulrichsen. Um, Dr. Ulrichsen is a fellow with the Middle East, um, sorry, fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston. He's also an associate fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs with Chatham House. Um, his research examines the political economy and international relations of the Gulf states and their changing positions within regional and international politics. He's the author of six books. Uh, I'm not going to read all their names, but he's a well-accomplished uh, writer and author. I was uh, really happy when I was reading his book because this is a subject matter that uh, I was able to follow uh, for a while closely, but at the same time, uh, in understanding the internal uh, dynamics, internal GCC, Gulf dynamics, uh, was a good prize. The book is right here, highly recommended. It. It's a well-researched book. Uh, it's well-written, very readable, and it's very nicely sort of outlined uh, in terms of its themes and its contextualization of uh, issues, providing history and background on the, on the subject matter. But the main focus is, of course, uh, the Gulf crisis as we, we've come to know it in 2017, June 2017, when uh, the Gulf states, uh, Saudi, UAE, uh, Bahrain, and I don't want to get it wrong, um, uh, Egypt uh, severed diplomatic ties with Qatar. They sought to isolate Qatar and uh, uh, they went on a sort of uh, campaign, public diplomacy campaign as well, uh, to isolate um, Qatar. So we are going to try to understand the background, the reasons, the dynamics for this. So I don't want to talk a lot more, but um, I, I also want to emphasize one more thing, actually. Dr. Ulrichsen in this book emphasizes a more Qatari viewpoint it has often been, this conflict has been analyzed within the perspective of regional geopolitics, U.S. foreign policy, U.S. interests, which Dr. Ulrichsen definitely spends a lot of time explaining. But he, he provides, he balances that with a lot of uh, how Qataris uh, saw where they were and how they wanted to operate and what kind of strategies they, they employed to overcome the challenges that were impending in June 2017. Uh, so I don't want to give a lot more away, but uh, 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 Dr. Ulrichsen, can you, you actually talk about two uh, precedents to the 2017 Gulf crisis. One is 1996 and one in 2014. Uh, those are definitely very different uh, incidents with different dynamics, but there are many also similarities. It provides a great context. I was, it was a pleasure to read. I wasn't aware, especially the 96. I'm not a golf expert, as I mentioned it to you, but uh, 
Can you start from that and, of course, explain to us what the main sort of argument of the book is? Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for putting this uh, talk together and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. So if you look at the allegations and the claims and the counterclaims, a lot of what the Saudis and the Emiratis especially are saying is that in their view, Qatari foreign policy went rogue in 1995, which is the year that the father Emir, the Emir of the current, the father of the current Emir, Sheikh Tamim, uh, took power. He, uh, Sheikh Hamad took power in 1995. He uh, ousted his own father. And in the Saudi Emirati viewpoint, he then put Qatar onto a foreign policy uh, which was very different from the Saudis and the Emiratis. It was trying to be different, it was trying to be autonomous, to, to really carve out Qatar's distinct path. And for Saudi Arabia especially, they took um, offense at a small country trying to be different, to do something different from them. And from an Emirati point of view, especially from Abu Dhabi, gradually they became concerned at Qatar's support for, as they sought, Islamist groups. Now that's the view from Saudi Arabia and from the UAE. From uh, Qatar's point of view in 1995, the Emir uh, took power, Sheikh Hamad, and he began a process of gradual evolution and gradually making the most of Qatar's resources, which were liquefied natural gas, creating linkages with states around the world, becoming more assertive in regional diplomacy, in, uh, in mediation, in hotspots, in Yemen they tried to mediate, in in Darfur, in Lebanon. So trying to really become more of a regional player um, using the experience of the 1990 Gulf crisis when Kuwait had been invaded by Iraq, but because Kuwait had linkages and partnerships with countries around the world, it meant that Kuwait was, was liberated very quickly. There was, there was an incentive not to just accept it. And so Qatar began to try and escape the Saudi shadow and that was never really accepted by the Saudis, that Qatar would try and develop its own autonomous set of policies. And so in 1996, there was an attempt to try and reimpose the emir that had been ousted, who was the grandfather of the current emir, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, supported by Egypt, so the same four countries that came together in 2017. They came together in 1996 to try and really reverse, reverse the um, 1995 takeover try and put things back to the way they were. They were concerned that uh, this new leadership in Qatar would begin to develop their own set of policies, not follow a consensus that was left down in Saudi Arabia. And then uh, 15 years later with the Arab Spring and Qatar's support for groups that challenged the authoritarian status quo, especially in North Africa and also in Syria, that really alarmed the UAE and Abu Dhabi especially with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who were very concerned by the Islamist gains as they saw the fact that Islamists were often winning elections in, in North Africa post-Arab Spring. And so after 2011, Abu Dhabi really became the, the focal point of a counter-revolutionary attempt to try and roll back the, up, the, the openings of 2011 and to contain, as they saw it, Qatar's influence in supporting anti-status quo groups and movements. So that came together in 2011. So in 2013, we had two uh, episodes a week apart on the 25th of June, 2013. The Emir, Emir Hamad in Qatar, he abdicated, he stepped aside. 
for his son, Sheikh Tamim, who was 33 years old, to take over. And within weeks, within weeks, we saw the beginning of Emirati and Saudi pressure on the young new emir. So within weeks, we saw this attempt to try and make sure that Qatar could never again threaten the regional status quo. And by that point, just a week after the takeover, the handover of power in Qatar, we had the military takeover in Egypt as well. That was the 3rd of July when Mohamed Mursi, the first democratically elected president of Egypt from the Muslim Brotherhood, was toppled by huge protests supported by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So that was exactly a week and a day, eight days after the handover in Qatar. So from the very first week of Sheikh Tamim's time as Emir, he's really been faced with the, the backlash from the Saudis, from the Emiratis, of his father's policy approach to try and become more autonomous. And so you in could... we had a, a three, we had those three countries withdraw their ambassadors for nine months to try and pressure Qatar to change course. If you can just put a comma right there, and uh, yeah. what in the book there is this constant theme, uh, the sort of changing of rulers in 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 sort of uh, Qatar seems to be times where you know Saudi and UAE and others seem to either tame the new ruler or intervene uh, in a way that would basically um, sort of guide them go uh, into their direction. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, uh, sort of handover of power, the change of, uh, you know, rulers especially? So historically, the ruling family in Qatar had had splits and divisions. There were successions in 1913, 1949, 1960, 72 and 95, and they were often not consensual. You would have one family member taking over from another, and that happened in 1995. And so that encouraged the Saudis and Emiratis to think they could take advantage of those splits to try and reimpose the emir who had been ousted in 1995 to reimpose him in 1996. And so with that history of splits and of contested successions, the fact that 2013, the emir would voluntarily hand over to his son. From a Qatari point of view, that was unusual. And I think the Saudis and Emiratis thought, well, here's this 33-year-old kid, almost, in their view. He's not tested. We'll see what happens if we pressure him. And so within weeks of the handover in 2013, we saw the beginning of the Saudi Emirati pressure on a young new ruler as he settled into power as he himself consolidated his own domestic authority to see perhaps what they could achieve, whether they could put Qatar as they wanted to do it back into their, into their sort of regional place, but also play on these splits within the family that they believed would work to their advantage. And we saw the same thing in 2017 as well. Uh, what of course has happened is the exact opposite, that Qataris rallied around the throne, they rallied around the ruler. And ironically, for a ruling family that has in the past been split, We've now seen it more unified and more united than at any time in the last hundred years, because in the face of external pressure, they've come together. And that is just, I think, one of many miscalculations or at least unanticipated consequences of the 2014 and 2017 uh, rifts with Qatar that we've now seen. But the, the Qatari ruling family and also state and society in Qatar are probably now closer together just because of all this external pressure from their regional neighbors. 
That coming together, however, was not in defiance. You explain in that book, uh, what was their attitude, the national mood, national attitude under this kind of pressure? It, it didn't sound like they went out to say, we're going to fight this to the end and that kind of coming together, but rather a different kind. Well, in 2014, there was a sense of surprise, a sense of bewilderment, I think, that the Saudis, Emiratis, and Bahrainis had coordinated in terms of, uh, of withdrawing their ambassadors, and that lasted for nine months. But it was eventually resolved. There was an agreement uh, signed in Riyadh in late 2013, and then another agreement in 2014, heavy Kuwaiti mediation, as the Kuwaitis again have tried to do. And there was, I think, an acknowledgement on all sides in 2014, that uh, they would make concessions, that there would be a compromise, that all sides identified areas in which they could compromise. And for the Qataris, for example, they, uh, they expelled a number of Islamists from the UAE who had been given, taken refuge in Qatar. Uh, they were expelled in 2014. We had some Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood figures who uh, were relocated to London. Uh, we had um, Qatar closing down the Egyptian branch of Al Jazeera as part of an agreement. So we did have compromises. I think what's been so uh, difficult since 2017 has been the polarization of the narratives and the, the sense in Qatar that they made compromises in 2014. And even they sent, for example, troops to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen in 2015. Even the, their view, I think, the, the gestures of goodwill that they had made were not enough to prevent uh, not just a recurrence of the, the rift in 2017, but at a much more serious level, at a, a level which actually hit individuals and families because it involved a blockade and it involved families being split and unable to visit each other. And of course, in, in the Gulf, family, from family and tribal ties cross borders. They don't they're not concentrated just within one country. So this 2017 blockade, which is continuing three years later, has really hit individuals, has hit families who cannot travel, who cannot see their relatives. So it's gone way beyond just the disagreement between leaders, which can be resolved by an agreement between those leaders as well, like it was in 2014. Uh, this one is so polarized, it's so bitter, because individuals are being affected, and also because of the the online aspect of so much of the bitterness on media and social media as well, where all sides, especially from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have had this campaign of kind of vilification of Qatar, of Qataris, of people who have been supportive of Qatar as well. So it's really been, it's gotten very nasty. And as it's gotten very nasty, it's made it much more difficult for, I think, everyone to sort of put that kind of Pandora's box back away to pretend maybe the last three years never happened and to kind of have an agreement where they can all move forward. It's much harder just because it's been so much more bad tempered and it's really hit so many people much more directly than perhaps in the past. Thank you for those comments. I, I want to kind of understand the driving force, uh, forces, uh, behind this kind of blockade, right? In 96, you mentioned two things. They were both directly kind of, they were directly tied to Saudi, Saudi concerns, uh, you know. Uh, but when we come to 2010, 14, 17, um, 
it felt like earlier, let's say 90s and 2000s or even 80s maybe, it's more about whether you're within the orbit of Saudi Arabia or not. But later on, you have uh, sort of broader regional dynamics. Uh, you mentioned Arab Spring, of course. Um, but the, 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 the persistent similarities are interesting. So what are some of the driving forces that will always kind of cause this kind of confrontation? And then what are some of the sort of contextual or, or, or sort of time sensitive contemporary reasons? Well, I think you're right to identify that in the 1990s and 2000s, the, the driver of a lot of the discontent was Saudi Arabia with Qatar, just partly because the Qataris and the Saudis' point of view, the Qataris were trying to be above their station, they were trying to be autonomous. The creation of Al Jazeera in 1996 was a major point, a flashpoint for the Saudis especially. In 2002, Al Jazeera broadcast a program which I think had interviews with some Saudi dissidents. And so the Saudis withdrew their ambassador in 2002 for five years. So we've had a precedent for a long period of no ambassador. He was, uh, with, he was uh, withdrawn for a period of five years. And a lot of states at one point or another in the 2000s complained about Al Jazeera and in their view, the fact that Al Jazeera was located in Qatar and was at least partially funded by the Qatari government stroke ruling family meant that in their view, whatever was carried on Al Jazeera carried the endorsement or at least partial endorsement of the Qatari leadership. So Al Jazeera was a persistent flashpoint. The Qatari attempt to become more vocal, to become more involved in regional affairs, I think encouraged the notion that they were perhaps muscling in on Saudi uh, spheres of influence, for example, in Yemen, when the Qataris tried in 2007-8 to mediate in Yemen. And then in 2011, of course, with the Arab Spring, when Al Jazeera was used um, in the view of the Saudis and Emiratis to kind of really broadcast the scenes in North Africa and then also in Syria and, of course, in Libya as well, it, seemed like, it seems to them that the, this was a very different um, conception of what the Middle East would look like, a Middle East that was not purely authoritarian, with this kind of authoritarian status quo, but where you had the Middle East moving towards uh, regimes that were changing, that were in transition, and actually holding elections which Islamists were perhaps going to win. And partly, I think, because Qatar had been more relaxed about that notion that Islamists might take power in North Africa because there was no real potential for any unrest within Qatar itself, but the Saudis didn't have that luxury. I think the Saudis, and especially the Abu Dhabi leadership, were much more conservative, much more status quo, much more concerned about any attempt to rock a boat that was, in their view, solidly autocratic. So really 2011, where you had the Qataris, or at least Al Jazeera, and then Qatari-supported groups in Libya and elsewhere, supporting the uprisings against authoritarian leaders. And then you had the Saudis and Emiratis really trying to maintain that authoritarian status quo. That added a real geopolitical edge to the kind of longer-term concerns, especially in Saudi Arabia. And then what you had in 2013 was Abu Dhabi, especially after 2013, Abu Dhabi and Saudi, Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia really coming together on this issue. So Abu Dhabi together with King Abdullah and then King Salman, especially now Mohammed Salman, really seeing together that joint threat that they see from Qatar. So that's what changed in 2013, 2014. 
Yeah, that's very revealing because, you know, Al Jazeera made its name uh, much earlier, especially, you know, during the Iraq war, uh, release of Bin Laden tapes, etc. So uh, they, they became a brand in the 2000s and then they did they were kind of the only right uh, pan region uh, sort of regional network, but uh, the the Saudis were not comfortable with them. They applied pressure on Qatar, etc. But this kind of maximalist demand didn't come until the Arab Spring, when, like you said, uh, they probably felt uh, threatened. Their own regime could uh, could be damaged or could be under the microscope uh, soon enough. Um, so that was a, I think uh, that was a very interesting point uh, you make in the book. And uh, if you have anything to add to that, that would be great. Well, if you look at it on the surface, Abu Dhabi's position against any form of Islamist mobilization, the notion that Islam or Islamism and Islamist groups presents almost an existential threat, it doesn't seem to make sense just because the Abu Dhabi leadership is not about to be overthrown. There's no revolutionary upheaval in Abu Dhabi that's just waiting for a spark. Abu Dhabi is not Egypt in 2010. It's not a society about to collapse that just needs that match to set the, kind of set the fire. It's not, but the leadership is convinced that they face an existential threat. And if you even begin to allow a mobilization, you could let things run out of control. And that's what I think they thought happened in Egypt when the Mubarak leadership didn't realize until it was too late that they'd lost control. So the question then is why? Why does Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi see that existential threat when it doesn't really exist? And I think the difference between Abu Dhabi and Qatar is that Abu Dhabi is just one of seven emirates. So the UAE is a federation of seven different emirates. And you have Abu Dhabi, you have Dubai, but then you have five Northern Emirates as well, five other Emirates that are not as wealthy, that do not have the same kind of glitz and glamour that Abu Dhabi and Dubai have, that are home to higher proportions of Emiratis who are, who are living there, and are also more socially conservative and more religious. And so I think there's a concern, an underlying concern that that conservatism could be a potential mobilization point and so I think that's why, especially in Abu Dhabi, they were determined to stamp out any attempt to mobilize before it can become, begin to become too late. And so that's why we saw after 2011, the leadership in Abu Dhabi, not just cracking down domestically, but then after 2013, once the pendulum had begun to shift across the region with the downfall of the Egyptian government, then you saw Abu Dhabi really taking the lead also on a regional level to try and ensure that across the region, Islamist movements and Islamist groups and individuals could never again threaten the status quo. And so we've seen that in Libya, we've seen that in Yemen, we've uh, seen that obviously in kind of geopolitical moves against, uh, just against individuals that again disagree, that the leadership of Abu Dhabi disagrees with. And of course with, uh, with Turkey and the UAE, of course now really having a much wider geopolitical um, clash of visions as well. We see the UAE very much ranged on the opposite side of that axis in terms of um, that vision of the Middle East that they have, which is completely different now from, from, from visions that others have in the region as well. 
I was going to actually uh, try to uh, maybe clarify or refine a point. Uh, you, yes, they, they, like you said, they seem convinced that there is an existential threat, and you, you alluded to reasons that the, you know, intra uh, UAE dynamics could be important, and they could be in the long run scared. But um, at the same time, do you feel like this is more uh, of an how much of that really matches up against anti-Qatar in the region? You know what I mean? Uh, so Qatar already took a position in the regional affairs. They're promoting freedom of speech, uh, let's say, and people power movements, etc. What you know, what falls to to UAE? The the only alternative is to go for uh, status quo. Not necessarily that maybe they don't they feel. Uh, threatened um, for their own regime necessarily, but that allows them an inroad into the Saudi, uh, you know, network as well. They, they're able to mobilize Saudi around that idea. So when you put those on a on a scale, which one heavy is is heavier? Well, I think they, as you say, they sort of. They, they sort of bounce off each other in a sense. You have a kind of reaction and a counter-reaction and you gradually get a, a kind of merging of the two. I'd make the point, for example, in the 2000s, you know, UAE and Saudi had a lot of tension between them. You had uh, the UAE and Saudi really at odds with each other up until 2010. In 2009, for example, the, there, was going, there were plans for a single currency in the Gulf and a central bank was awarded to Riyadh and not Abu Dhabi. The UAE withdrew from the entire project in absolute fury. Uh, there were also disagreements. The Saudis, uh, the UAE and Qatar built a pipeline for gas and the Saudis were against that. The Saudis also blocked successfully an attempt to build a bridge between Qatar and, Abu uh, Qatar and the UAE. The Saudis were actually the ones who had the problems with the UAE prior to 2010. The problem is that then as you say, the Arab Spring reshaped kind of regional geopolitics and they kind of created this kind of axis between Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, but then grew over time. And especially after 2015, the uh, sort of relationship between Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman, the two crown princes after 2017 of, uh, of Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi became very close. And that became one of the drivers of, of the sort of anti-Qatar issues. And yes, the animosity towards Qatar was very much a part of the issues driving Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi together when before 2010 there had been these differences. I think in their view, the Arab Spring was such an, a potentially destabilizing event that it brought them closer and it gave them a common adversary within the region, not just in, uh, in Egypt, for example, with Mohammed Mursi's government, but also a common regional adversary that brought them together and that, that, of course, is Qatar. And it shows how identities and how relationships are also fluid. They're, they're in flux. They're not necessarily... Uh, this Abu Dhabi-Saudi relationship is not necessarily set in stone. We've seen in Yemen, for example, how Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia support quite different groups. And Yemen could easily become an issue in the future for Abu Dhabi and Saudi where they actually do fall out. So, you know, these relationships are not set in stone. They they act and they react in response to events. And that was very much in response to the Arab Spring and to the notion that Qatar was, in their view, a common kind of common adversary that brought them closer together. Could we say that it even lacks internal coherence to further your point? 
in the sense that you know they they are going for status quo and, uh, in the region and for authoritarian leaders and supporting the Egyptian coup. But at home, they at least at the PR level, they talk about reforming, diverse, diversifying the economy, giving more rights to women, etc. So, how, and then there's the generational thing you talk about in the book. Both MBS and MBZ are in their early 30s, mid 30s. Um, it's a generational shift as well. So, how do you see that uh, sort of uh, playing out? Well, I think in 20, from 2013, 14 onwards, the, the Saudis and Emiratis were trying to ensure that, from a, that, that sort of the generational shift that they were seeing domestically would not be threatened by any further, further unrest. And I think they also realized, especially in Saudi Arabia, that domestic problems that kind of need to transform the Saudi economy meant that had to be a priority. And for that to have any chance of success, it was even more important not to have any political instability. And then in Abu Dhabi, especially, I think they took a point of view that, I mean, Abu Dhabi does see a threat in Saudi Arabia. I think Abu Dhabi sees its main security threat within the region. Partly they see Qatar as a threat, obviously, as in their point of view right now. But in the longer term, I think they do see a potentially failing Saudi Arabia as their biggest security threat. If Saudi Arabia were to fail, if, you, if economic contradictions, economic challenges in Saudi become too great that the Saudi leadership loses control, that would spill over into all neighboring states. So I think the leadership in Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed especially, felt that they had to support the Saudis for everything they could to ensure the Saudis tried to make change on their own terms before it became too late. And Mohammed bin Zayed identified Mohammed bin Salman as this one person in Saudi Arabia who he felt he could make that change. So in the, in the Emirati point of view, from Abu Dhabi's point of view, Ahmed Salman, MBS, is the only person who can change Saudi Arabia. That's why they've supported him so strongly, even after all of the issues over the past few years, the uh, killing of Jamal Khashoggi, for example, and you know, kind of the Yemen conflict not going as planned, but the Emiratis has no alternative. If MBS loses control or doesn't become king, in their view, Saudi Arabia runs the risk of kind of imploding. And so for them, that's kind of worst case scenario. So they're kind of really locked into supporting Mohammed bin Salman. So you had that kind of Mohammed bin Zayed, Mohammed bin Salman kind of geopolitical axis emerging between 2014 and 2015. And that has continued, I think, to reshape Gulf politics. And of course, as you say, the age, the fact that Emir Tamim in Qatar is now 40, Mohammed bin Salman is 34, Mohammed bin Zayed is a little bit older, he's in his 50s, but he's still going to be around for quite a long time. It means that now there are these three figures who could easily be still in power for 20, 30, maybe even longer, more years. And they're very different from the generation or before them the generation that built the Gulf Cooperation Council, the generation that was really built on achieving consensus and kind of talking about things. These are actually three leaders who are much more nationalistic in many ways of trying to build national identities. And they're kind of together now and they're gonna really reshape regional politics in different ways for at least a foreseeable future. Thank you so much. We've spent quite a bit of time in the 
background history contextualization i think it's been very very helpful we don't always get this but let's let's move on to 2017 um and i want to encourage our zoom listeners to post their questions to q a uh, box uh, if not chat box but q a box is more helpful um anyway um so what happened in 2017 and then the immediate reaction in Washington was very interesting, let's say, uh, to be to put it mildly. How did it uh, roll out? How did it play out? Uh, how did it, I'm going to ask you later on, how, how it basically what the result was? Well, I think you have to look at what was happening in the first few months of 2017 when Donald Trump had come into office in January, proclaiming loudly that he was now in power, that things were going to be done differently. If you remember the very first week of the Trump administration, they announced the ban on travel to the US from Muslim majority countries. And they were basically saying, we're in power. This is, our, this is our show. We're doing things our way. And that institutions and US interests no longer mattered the way that it is. So I think the Saudis, but especially the Emiratis, felt there was a golden opportunity to try and make their point against Qatar and to do so with a US administration in place that might not push back against any attempt to put Qatar into its place uh, that a normal, quote unquote, normal US government would have done. And so there was a campaign of outreach, very strong outreach, especially from the UAE, but also from the Saudis to White House to people around Donald Trump. Donald Trump, of course, made Saudi Arabia his first overseas visit as president. He went to Saudi Arabia two weeks before the blockade. And in fact, the hacking of the Qatar News Agency, which was the trigger point, the agency was hacked on the 23rd of May 2017. A fake news story was posted that uh, allegedly had the Emir praising Iran and criticizing the US. And it was used as the sort of pretext for a two-week media campaign against Qatar, which were then uh, took the form of the blockade. That hacking took place one day after Donald Trump was in Riyadh. So with the benefit of hindsight, it looks like it was all part of a preconceived plan that the Saudis, would, the Saudis and Emiratis would talk with Trump when he was in Riyadh. There would then be this hack, this two-week media campaign. And then they would move on Qatar in the beginning of June, on the 5th of June. And actually, Donald Trump initially supported that move. He actually tweeted the following day uh, in which he said, good that someone is finally taking action against Qatar. And he actually said in his tweet that he referred back to discussions that had in the Riyadh meetings that he'd had in Saudi Arabia. So he almost tried to take credit and imply that there had been discussions in Riyadh. And that may have reflected the feeling in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh that you had the president in the White House coming into office with such little knowledge of the US interests that you could actually try and bend those interests to your advantage. And there were rumors, for example, that Trump was unaware that the main US airbase for the US forces in the Gulf was in Qatar. So what you had instead was uh, the Secretary of State and Defense, Rex Tillerson and James Mattis, rushing to the White House to really make the point that actually, from a US point of view, there's no good side, bad side. This is not 
kind of this is not like the U.S. and Iran from where or from Saudi Arabia and Iran, where from a U.S. point of view, your Saudi Arabia is the good guy, Iran's the bad guy. From a U.S. point of view, these are all of our partners, and our partners are clashing with each other, and we're the ones who lose out. And I think that finally got through to Donald Trump by September 2017 when by that point Trump was calling for the blockade to be ended. But I think by that point it had become so entrenched, the initial attempt in June to force Qatar to, it was never clear what they wanted Qatar to do. And that was another problem. I mean, that was the other issue. They you announced- actually, the you, actually, you actually mentioned in the book that uh, those 13 uh, sort of demands came after a statement by the State Department uh, uh, sorry, spokeswoman uh, uh, North, I think uh, that you know there were no even demands immediately, right? It was well, exactly. So what you had was the fifth of June, the blockade, and then two weeks later, there had still been no public explanation a of what they why they did what they did, and b what they wanted Qatar to do to stop the blockade. And so Heather Nauert, who was the State Department spokeswoman, she actually gave a press conference on the, on the Tuesday, I think, and she said, we're mystified because we don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. No demands have been communicated. And so within two days, we had those list of 13 demands, which as you said earlier, were, were maximalist. They were designed almost to be rejected and almost to give a pretext for then a further move against Qatar. It was almost as if they were trying to give a kind of a smoking gun that we're the ones who are trying to negotiate and they're the ones who are refusing to negotiate. And so the fact that they came just two days after the State Department said, we don't know what they're doing, why they're doing it, indicates that they were kind of drawn up perhaps in a rush, but then they didn't, they were never the basis of a negotiation. The Qataris could no way have accepted them. And so I think over time they became, they symbolized just how stuck this crisis has become where you have this maximalist position that's no basis for negotiation. You note this in the book, and I, re I remember those days as well. Uh, the blockade was announced, and very next day, Turkish parliament uh, passed, uh, sort of ratified the military agreements, defense cooperation agreements with Qatar, and uh, quite well quickly deployed uh, some soldiers there and uh, assets. And the, the list of demands coming two weeks later, like you said, it's either that they just didn't even think about it, like whether these could be met, they were already uh, committed to, you know, basically severing relations uh, regardless of what Qatar did in the meantime, or, you know, it was really just not thoughtful at all, I guess. <laughs> Either way, it, it doesn't seem a lot, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that, you know, uh, Turkey would backtrack, let's say, within a, you know, within two weeks or something like that. Well, one of the demands was actually that the Qataris um, um, stop the Turkish deployment, that they actually close the Turkish base. They also demanded that Qatar sever relations with Iran, and they also demanded that Qatar close Al Jazeera, which became a freedom of speech issue as well. Uh, they demanded that Qatar would pay reparations for damages, which they never defined, and would kind of be monitored for 10 years. I mean, it was completely, it was an intrusion of sovereignty that no government could have accepted. And the, you know, the inclusion of the demand that Qatar expel the Turkish base 
I think, showed just how provocative from Saudi Arabia and UAE's point of view that had become. But the fact that the Turkish military, the Turkish parliament met on the, the Wednesday, I think, of the, the 7th of June, and they ratified those agreements, that was symbolic because it showed the Saudis and Emiratis that if you took action, Qatar would not be on its own. And it raised the cost of potentially doing something. Nobody quite knows what exactly was planned. But I think the Saudis and Emiratis had hoped that if the US would withdraw support from Qatar, the Qataris would be almost on their own. And the Turkish um, decision showed that the Qataris were not on their own. And that actually had a big impact because ever since 1990, with the US liberation of Kuwait and the Gulf War, the smaller Gulf states had always assumed that their security guarantor of first and last resort, should they come under threat, would be the United States. And what you had instead in 2017, at least just for a few days, you had the, that security relationship with the US coming into doubt because the president himself had tweeted about it. And so with that coming into doubt, it was actually the Turks who were then seen to be the ones making a statement that this would not be allowed to happen. And so whether you look at it from a US point of view, this is quite, this is quite something. You know, this network of states that have been the closest US security partners for more than 30 years now in the Gulf, when something happened, it wasn't the US that was seen to be coming to their support, at least initially. It was a third party. Okay, it was another NATO ally, of course, it was Turkey. But in terms of confidence, confidence in the US as being always being there if you need it, I think it left the Qataris quite shaken. And actually, the Saudis and Emiratis had that point of view two years later in a totally different context when we had the attacks in 2019 on shipping in May and June 2019, and then the attack on Aramco in September. And then again, you had the US do nothing. And so actually that shook their point, their view of the US as well, in a totally different way that it shook the Qataris' view of the US in 2017. Especially in a country, the like second largest, I believe, you mentioned that in the book, uh, of US base, air bases is, is located and Qatar is actually paying a lot of Right. money to for for its maintenance and uh, uh so that's interesting there are two questions one is more general what is the role of turkey and then the other one is specifically about the dispatch of turkish troops um uh, after the beginning of the bike boycott was it just a symbolic thing or this relationship may endure into the future uh, we talked about Turkey a bit, but how do you see that uh, role, especially in uh, helping Qatari security on the ground? And the, I think base has 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 been enlarged, and uh, number of sol soldiers increased in the meantime. Uh, I'm not sure how many there are now, but uh, go ahead, please. I mean, the deployment in 2017 was, I think, more symbolic than anything else. It was a few hundred, I think, at most. It would never have uh, compensated for the loss of the U.S. base had that been uh, had that happened, and the Emiratis were actually quite um, assertive in trying to get the U.S. to move their base out of Qatar. And actually, that backfired because the U.S. Department of Defense, the Pentagon, was actually quite annoyed with the UAE for trying to tell them what to do and to try and almost 
kind of interfere with what they saw as U.S. national and regional security interests. That ended up backfiring. But the, the, the Turkish base and the kind of agreements with Turkey, I think, are very useful because the lesson, not just of 2017, but the lesson of really the whole last decade since the Arab Spring has been that the U.S. isn't necessarily as engaged in the Gulf as they were in the past. And it's wise to not have complete one reliance on any one country as a security partner. It's wise to diversify and to make sure that you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. And so Qatar, for example, now has a Turkish base. They also have um, arms deals with UK and France, as well as with, um, so with, the, with, um, with the US. You know, the, the Abu Dhabi has a French base. They have the Canadian and US and Australian. Uh, bases in UAE as well. Saudi Arabia is now creating close links with Russia. They're all beginning to hedge their bets and to balance and to diversify away from just the US. And so I think that's part of that. That's what we're seeing. And, and that's important just because the Gulf, you know, the Arabian Peninsula had been very much a, a US. And before the US, it was a British set of interests going back more than 100 years. Uh, and now it's much more international. We're seeing much more of an internationalization of the Gulf with a Turkish role, with the Chinese in uh, parts of Oman and Dukum, with Russia and Saudi Arabia and the UAE becoming closer, with the French, with the British now having bases in Kuwait and in uh, Oman and Bahrain. So we're seeing a process of internationalization, which is really becoming much more than just the US. And so Turkey is very much uh, a big part of that, and I think will continue as we go forward, especially given the wider geopolitical uh, map, I guess, now, which has Turkey on one, one axis and, of course, the UAE on the other. You mentioned in your book uh, that the perception in Turkey that the UAE had some role in the cool, failed coup attempt in uh, July 2016, and this blockade comes... Uh, pretty soon afterwards and Qatari Emir was the one of the first ones to uh, to call and uh, sort of uh, make statements against the coup while it was actually undertaking it very early on and that contrasts with the US statements early statements about the Turkish coup attempts but I just wanted to add that that's already also in your book and it, it kind of Turkey you know uh, sort of um, has been developing this relationship with Qatar, but uh, Qatar also, you know, supported Turkey in, in international platforms in, in, during that failed coup attempt, which was four years ago, about uh, uh, just uh, July 15th, so a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, that was but, July 2016, uh, and so then in June 2017, less than one year later, I think what people in Ankara very quickly saw was something similar happening. Yes. where you had first in 2016 and now in 2017 an attempt to put pressure on countries that were seen to be um, geopolitical opponents of the UAE. And so I think they, they very quickly saw what was happening in their view as a continuation of that pressure from 2016 on a, right. on a regional level. That's right. Also, the coup in Egypt was already in their right. minds as well. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I have several questions here. I want to uh, bring them up. Uh, one you you talked uh, quite a bit about, but 
how does the presence of a major U.S. military headquarters and airbase at El Udeid affect the behaviors of the actors in these tensions between Qatar and her neighbors? I think the miscalculation, the biggest miscalculation that was made in 2017 was that the Saudis and the Emiratis, I think, felt that if they could flip the White House in support of their action, the U.S. government as a whole would, would flip with it. And that misread U.S. politics, which is, is diverse. And you have checks and balances. Now, maybe they misread that because the Trump White House was encouraging people to think that the old rules no longer mattered. But as I said, the U.S. military and the U.S. state and defense departments very quickly counterbalanced the White House and effectively forced a, a, re, a kind of rebalancing back in favor of a mediation. And so I think the notion that the U.S. base in Qatar would effectively lock down, you have the base locked down while something happens around it, was never going to be realistic, but that seems to be more was anticipated and what might happen. So the fact that the U.S. is there, I think, has actually played a stabilizing role once it became clear that the U.S. government, the White House, would support a resolution. I think what we've seen now is that no one party wants to make the first move to make a concession. We're, we're kind of stuck. And so what the U.S. has done instead is to try and pressure all parties to say, fine, if you want to continue this feud, that's so you continue the feuds, but don't let it affect our security and defense interests. And so there was initially, I think, a threat that Qatar would not be allowed to take part in U.S. Gulf defense um, kind of uh, networks. And the U.S. threatened to withdraw from exercises if that happened. And that very quickly made sure that Qatar was still included. And then the U.S. more recently has tried to create a Middle East Strategic Alliance, or MISA, and they tried to do that with Jordan and with Egypt in the same room so that you don't just have the six Gulf states plus the US, you can add components, you add countries. You don't make it look like a Gulf plus US, it's a wider initiative. The problem there is that Egypt left last year. The Egyptians didn't want to be part of it, and actually that shows you that there's no one single layer of kind of disagreement because the Egyptians, of course, one of the blockading states, but they actually were the ones who didn't want to be part of this initiative. So the U.S. has tried to find pragmatic workarounds where you take the politics out of the equation. You kind of have military to military cooperation, but you don't have those political discussions that you could have had uh, before 2017, just because no one wants to be that first party that makes the first move and maybe admits that we made a mistake. So I think we're stuck in that respect. Thank you. One of the questions was about uh, what the U.S. you know stand looks like in this confusing relationship of being friend to all these parties. But you just mentioned that you know keep the feuds between us don't impact our security kind of uh, relationship, security interests. I think the U.S. position right now is that this has gone on way too long. It's been now more than three years. It hits U.S. interest because the U.S. has also simultaneously been trying to escalate pressure on Iran. We had the maximum pressure campaign against Iran at the same time as we've had the Gulf crisis. And from a U.S. point of view, I think it undermines the attempt to contain, as in view, to contain Iran when your own partners are against each other. And so from a U.S. point of view, it's gone on too long. I 
think the problem that the US government faces right now is again, no one wants to make that first move. And the US point of view is to try and separate each of the issues and deal with them separately. But the problem for the Saudis and Emiratis is that that's also what the Qataris want to do as well. The Qataris at the beginning adopted a kind of rule of law approach where they separated all the issues and took them to international arbitration. And we're now seeing that international arbitration. We saw the, the World Trade Organization uh, issue a ruling last month on Saudi piracy of uh, broadcasting rights owned by BIN from Qatar. We saw a ruling last week on civil aviation on the um, kind of interim ruling. The US has kind of moved close to the Qatari point of view of trying to separate the issues. But by doing so, it's almost stiffened resistance to doing that among Saudis and Emiratis who think that then we're almost resolving it on their terms. And so we saw a Fox News report last week, for example, that they had been close to an agreement to reopen airspace to Qatar Airways. Because every time Qatar Airways now takes off from Doha, you have to go over Iranian airspace and actually pay transit fees to Iran, which helps the Iranian government, of course, at a time mm. when he's trying to sanction them. And so there were reports that the Saudis came under pressure from the UAE not to agree to reopen airspace. And so that's the problem, I think, now. There were four states blockading Qatar, and they still don't have a consensus on how to end this. And the UAE, I think the animosity in the UAE is still much stronger. And so even if the Saudis were to lift or at least partially ease the blockade, the UAE, I think, would put pressure on the Saudis not to do that. And Mohammed bin Salman is, I think, still close to Mohammed bin Zayed, that he would rather not, I don't think that's an issue they're going to disagree on. So I think the Emiratis are putting pressure on the Saudis not to make an agreement, even though that's probably what the US is putting pressure on the Saudis to actually make an agreement. So we're kind of stuck as well in that dynamic as well. Thank you. Uh, we have quite a few questions, one comment about uh, U.S. Uh, Brian Fuchs saying this standoff needs to end. Uh, I guess from what you're saying, it, it might end up because of the compartmentalization of so many issues, it might uh, become defunct in the medium term and long term, I guess. I thought at one point last year that the crisis would just phase away into the background. It would become part of background music because there was an attempt, I think, at a reconciliation after the attacks on Saudi Arabia last, last September. And there was actually a dialogue between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and people thought it was going pretty well. But then nothing happened. It didn't actually go anywhere. And they announced in January that the dialogue had stopped. What we then had was coronavirus, the pandemic, and even, uh, even something like a pandemic, which affects all the countries regardless of geopolitical issues or boundaries, even that couldn't bring them together. So again, I just think this shows how, dis how strongly embedded we are. But because nobody wants to be the one who admits in public that they made a mistake, I don't think we'll see a kind of grand reconciliation summit. So Donald Trump in 2018, he wanted everyone to come to Camp David. He wanted this sort of grand summit that he would then take the credit for bringing everyone together and he would then take the credit for kind of resolving this but that was never likely to happen just because the rulers themselves would not want to admit that they were wrong so what we might see eventually is gradually restrictions would be either lifted or just ignored i just what we've seen over the past six yeah. months 
is that I just don't think we're at that point yet. That may happen in the future. We may just see gradually blockade becoming background music, but I think we're still not at that position. Thank you, Dr. Ulrichson. I, I, I think we're going to end up going a few minutes uh, over because there's still quite a few questions, if, if I may pose them to you. What is your impression of Qatar's relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood? Is the leadership sympathetic to the MB? Uh, does it actively support MB? If you could just briefly respond, that would be great. I mean, there were signs that there were maybe people in the old, older generation in Qatar that were sympathetic. Uh, a lot of uh, Egyptian teachers, for example, they fled Egypt in the 1950s and 60s when the Brotherhood was being uh, suppressed in Egypt. They went to Qatar, they went to the UAE, they went to Saudi Arabia. They became the teachers of that first generation of, um, of school children in, in those countries, including Qatar. And so when they came of age in the 1990s and 2000s, and they were the ones in positions of you know, decision-making authority, I think there was some degree of residual sympathy. And not just in Qatar, but in other countries too. On the other hand, the Qatari branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, they actually closed themselves down voluntarily in 1999. And they focused on social work, not on political activity. So there's never been any political activity within Qatar. The issue, I think, maybe for the Saudis and Emiratis is that the creation of Al Jazeera gave them a gave them a platform on a kind of regional level. And that kind of regional platform was utilized by Islamists, by the Muslim Brotherhood, by people like Yusuf al-Qadadawi. So that's what was a kind of driving that animosity that the Qataris are kind of allowed or kind of given a platform on a regional level to figures like that. But then of course, one of the other big figures that the Emiratis and Saudis always say they're against being in Doha is Asmi Bashara. And Asif Bashara is not an Islamist. He's an old school Arab nationalist. So it's not as if the Qataris were just supporting one group. They were supporting, or at least they were giving refuge to political exiles from many parts of the Middle East, of whom some happened to be brotherhood figures. So there was never, I think, an ideological um, conversion of any sort. It was more pragmatic that these were figures who were living in Doha. And of course, in 2011, with the political transitions after the Arab Spring, many of them then went back to their home countries after the regimes fell. And so they began to get involved, I think, in domestic politics. And so that, I think, maybe encouraged a feeling in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi that Qatar was somehow behind it. But it was just more about kind of just a pragmatic that they were living in Doha, they used the connections they already had. Thank you for that. Uh, what is your interpretation of why Hamad uh, stepped down in favor of Tamim? Again, short, if you can. Uh, well, uh, Emir Hamad had been uh, suffering from ill health. He'd had several operations. He'd, begin, he'd start to step away from about 2010 onwards, actually. He'd kind of gradually transferred more power to his son. Tamim was given uh, authority for the 2030 vision, for example, of economic change. Gradually, I think he was handing over more day-to-day -day activity. And I think maybe at some point, also with the Arab Spring replacing, you had this kind of youth kind of mobilization in other parts of the Middle East, replacing elderly leaders. I think he just felt that this was the right time to give a younger figure, his own son, a chance. And I think he felt that stepping away on his own terms was probably the right thing to do. 
but he'd definitely been stepping away over the previous two years at least, since 2011. And gradually Tamim had become the main kind of decision maker on a day-to-day -day level by, by 2013 especially. One question claims that in, uh, you know, it's being taught in Emirati schools to hate Qatar. How would sort of, would that uh, make it difficult for the government to change policy? Yeah, well, it does. And I also, I think in 2017, there was also a, a, an attempt to criminalize expressions of support or sympathy for Qatar. So if you said something sympathetic, you run the risk of actually uh, being arrested and then potentially being jailed. And so and then a lot of people then you know, began to try and outdo each other, try and be nasty as well. And you had a kind of real bitterness on media and on social media, which has made it much more difficult just because it's kind of become insulting, it's become personal on so many levels. And, you know, this has really made it much more, it's harder to imagine that you could have an agreement among leaders now, just because this is not an agreement, this, this dispute is no longer between leaders, it's between peoples. So I think this makes it much more difficult to try and overcome. Mm -hmm. You can sign an agreement, but people won't forget. You can't just pretend the last three years never happened. And I think that's the problem that they're going to face moving forward. Yeah, you actually talk quite a bit about how it impacted actual people, uh, the, the total blockade. Um, one last uh, question from the audience, Israeli-Palestinian Palestine policy, how much did that, the Qatar's policy, uh, how much of a role that played in the crisis? And how would you characterize Qatar's relations with Israel right now? Well, the Qataris have been supporting or providing a support for, for Gaza, financial support, that actually is being coordinated at every stage with Israel. It's being clear to Israel. The Israelis, I think, have appreciated the Qatari support for, for groups in Gaza, for, 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 for the people of Gaza. And again, it was a, there was an attempt in 2017 by the Emiratis especially to use the fact that the Qataris were active in Gaza and also to use the fact that the Qataris were also hosting a delegation of the Taliban in Doha for negotiations between the US and the Taliban in that aspect, and that they were also in, in, in Israel, I mean, in, in Palestine, they were um, active with, with, in Gaza with Hamas. And so there were, there were attempts to use that against Qatar. The Emirati ambassador in Washington gave an interview saying, what are they doing in Hamas? Why are they doing it? What are they doing with the Taliban? You know, they, they tried to use it against Qatar. But again, on both accounts, we then saw the US Taliban come to an agreement that was actually assisted heavily by Qatar. And we had the Israelis you know, putting on record their appreciation of the support that the Qataris have been given to at least try and stabilize Gaza. So we again, the attempt to use those against them, not just backfired, but actually I think made people in Washington and in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, actually realized that Qatar is not the destabilizing regional actor the Emiratis and Saudis were trying to make it out to be. There's a reason why they're engaged in Gaza. There's a reason why they had the office of the Taliban in Doha. And on both of those issues, they were doing so in full coordination with Israeli and with US officials. They weren't going rogue they weren't sort of freewheeling diplomacy. There was a reason for it, and it was very much being appreciated by the Israeli government, and of course, by the US when they had the US-Taliban agreements in February this year. Okay, my last question then. Uh, you, you 
you have a picture in this book about basically when the when this blockade was uh, announced, um, you don't get a, a knee-jerk reaction by the Qataris. And they almost are in the mood of, okay, we've seen this before. Now we are going to emphasize rule of law. We are going to reach out to international partners, to other countries. Uh, we are not going to retaliate. Uh, and then, you know, we won't cut the gas, for instance, to UAE. Um, so, and then supply chains are disrupted uh, and the economy is badly impacted, but also with that, they reach out to China, they talk to everyone and they, they quickly um, sort of shift, uh, are, they are able to shift uh, these supply chain routes as well. And of course, security partnership with the US, they don't get hung up on let's say Trump's statements in the first hours, et cetera. So how would you, let's say the, the leadership uh, quality emerging out of that crisis, uh, it seems, I mean, you emphasize this in so many areas, Qatar emerges as the resilient, uh, you know, power and they're actually strengthened uh, because of this crisis in many ways. So can you talk about that uh, as the final sort of closing statement, uh, uh, how they did that? Yes, I mean, part of the book as well, part of the reason I wanted to do it was that the Emirates and Saudis went in in 2017 and began the blockade, I think assuming that they would pressure the Qataris to change course. And the opposite happened. And so I wanted to see how we got from A to B, how we got to where we are. And on an economic point of view, the Qataris, of course, in 2014, had experienced a diplomatic blockade with the ambassadors being withdrawn. And so they'd had three years to think about, well, this might happen again. It may not just be the only time it happens. And so there was a degree of contingency planning and of scenario planning drawn up after 2014. And also the Qataris opened a huge new port, Hamad port in 2016 which was absolutely instrumental because it could receive large cargo ships for the first time direct. In 2014, 85% of cargo that came by ship would have to be initially unloaded first in Jebel Ali in Dubai, and then loaded onto smaller ships to go to Qatar. Had that happened in 2017, the Qataris would have been in very big difficulty very quickly. Their only land border with Saudi would have been shut and 85% of goods coming in by sea would have been affected as well. But instead, they could receive the ships directly to Hamad port. And so that was extremely important in giving that economic resilience. And then, of course, Qatar Airways quickly began to reroute uh, cargo planes from Turkey, from, uh, uh, from Iran, from uh, Central Asia, bringing food in. So within three days, they had kind of devised solutions to these supply chain problems. And they also began to kind of try and restructure a lot of domestic uh, manufacturing and food production as well. And again, this is, um, you know, the Saudis and Emiratis are blockading one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, resources were not a problem. I mean, they can't, I mean, you know, the Qataris were able to spend heavily in 2017 to make those, uh, make those replacements to, to, to do what was necessary to make sure there was no disruption. And I think part of the plan the Saudis and Emiratis would have had in 2017 was to try and create conditions of 
panic in Doha. If people had thought that food supplies were going to run out or medicines were going to run out, you know, there could have been a stampede, there could have been panic buying. And that, uh, the images of that would have then encouraged more people to go out and do the same thing, as we saw back in February and March this year with the corona, when we saw people panic buying, so everyone else went to do even more buying because they felt they also might be left behind. And that never happened. That never happened in 2017, partly because the Qataris have the resources to put in place the supply chain responses very quickly. And so that, again, was one major reason why blockade failed because they didn't create those conditions of panic. And then the other reason as well is because if you see the attempt to isolate Qatar in 2017, it never worked. There, no other countries joined the blockade apart from the Saudi-based government of Yemen, Khalifa Haftar in eastern Libya, who is of course a, a Madati alliance, and a couple of countries like Jordan, Chad, and Senegal downgraded ties, but then a year later they re-upgraded them as well. So the attempt to try and isolate Qatar also failed just because no countries other than those four joined in. And so in those respects, the blockade failed and Qatar was then able to just put in place using their resources, those workarounds that meant that they could actually diversify their own supply and trade routes and actually make them more, more resilient, more durable. I think they realized to have 90% of your dairy products coming across one land border made no sense if that land border could be shut without warning. So now those products not only made much more locally within Qatar, but they also have made much wider diversity of supply. So you're not reliant on goods from any one country or market that could suddenly be affected. And so I think also when we saw the travel and trade uh, restrictions being placed around the world in March this year, the Qataris also had planning now just because they'd already experienced this in 2017. A lot of other countries, you did have shortages because goods were now no longer traveling across countries. Whereas in Qatar's case, they at least had some practice in 2017 and becoming more self-sufficient and in trying to build up and diversify sources of supply. So it actually came in their, in their favor in the beginning of the pandemic in March and April this year. Professor Ulrikson, I want to thank you so much. This has been thank a you. very rich, rich conversation. Great book. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, buy it, read it. Um, thank you so much. And I think we are going to end our uh, discussion here. And we look forward to future book discussions. And we'll definitely keep Dr. Ulrikson in our radar as well. Uh, Folks, thank, thank you. you very much for joining us on, on uh, Zoom as well. Thank you. Thank you.